chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. That's, that's the last book of the Bible, so, uh, and the very first chapter of that last book. Uh, so we'll read that passage uh, momentarily, but l- let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now that you would come and you would teach us uh, from your word. We pray that your spirit would come and illumine your word both to our minds and to our hearts. We need you every hour and we need you this hour, Lord. So come, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in chapter 1 of Revelation, Jesus, as the Son of Man, declares, don't be afraid. Fear fear is a common temptation for all of us. I read somewhere some years ago that people are most afraid, more than anything else, of getting up and giving a speech in front of other people. I don't know if that's true. Who who decides what people are most afraid of? Uh, but, But certainly people do fear that, at least some people do. There's, there's a fear of heights. There can be a fear of swimming in deep water. There can be a fear of crowds. There can be a fear of enclosed and tight spaces. And there can be a fear, a fear of, of loneliness. We may, fear, we may fear losing our health or fear that we'll fail in our career. Or, or, or maybe, maybe we fear that we'll, we'll fail as parents. You know, we prayed and talked about sharing the gospel today. We may fear other people. We may, we may fear what they think about us if we, if, we, if we tell them about Jesus. We may fear that they think we're a fanatic or, or, or crazy or unintelligent. C.S. Lewis talks about the Fear of not being in the inner ring, that, that inner circle, the, 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 the in-group. And uh, if you want to read about this, if you haven't read his, uh, his great novel, actually you should read all three, it's the third novel in a series, but he has a novel called That, that Hideous Strength. Uh, that's, a, that's a great book, I'm sure some of you have read that book. And he talks about Mark Studdick. In, in that novel on Mark Studdick, he, he, he compromises, right, because he wants... He wants to be part of that inner ring. One of the strongest fears is the fear of death. Hebrews 2 says that those who fear death are are enslaved by that fear their their whole lives. You know, death hangs like a shadow over us, even if you're young, right? It's it's coming. Death is coming, and, and, and we can be enslaved by the fear of death. You know, Christians today, as, as the culture is changing, you know, people are at different places, but, but some, some, we may be fearing what's happening in, in our culture in the United States. There, there, there's, there's clearly a move away from the sexual morality we, we have as, as believers. But we need to remember, right, true Christians... We've always been in the minority. That was true in John's day when he wrote this, and that's true today, but it's 
always been true. That's, that's not new. Christians have always been outside the mainstream in the Roman world, and we're outside the mainstream today. When John wrote, believers were sidelined, they were discriminated against, they were persecuted, and they were even being put to death. And that's not happening yet in our culture, is it? We're not being put to death at this time. It may happen in the future. So John's message for us in the midst of this is what? Don't be afraid. Don't, don't fear. I, I think we can summarize what I'm uh, preaching in this message from John chapter 16, verse 33. There Jesus says, in the world you will have suffering. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take courage because I have overcome the world. So let's look at our text today, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I'm reading uh, from the English uh, Standard Version. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So, I'm, I'm going to break this text in the, in the three parts today. Verses, verses 9 through 12, we see the background. What's the background for this text? Verses 13 through 16 are, are the vision of Christ. And then verses 17 through 20 are the response. So, our theme is don't fear, but we have a background, verses 9 through 12. We have the vision of Christ, verses 13 through 16, and then we have the response. So let's, let's look at the background. First, we see in verse 9, who's the writer of this book? Verse 9 tells us it is John, and I believe this is the apostle John. Uh, 
He doesn't say he's the Apostle John, but that's been the view of most throughout church history. John was probably, when this was written, an old man in perhaps his 80s. And, and, and he likely wrote this book, we don't know this for sure, but he likely wrote this book between 85 and 95 AD when the emperor of Rome was a person named Domitian. John, in writing this book, he was, he was sent into exile for what? For, for preaching the gospel. We read about it there in the text, don't we? For, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So John, John was faithfully preaching the gospel, and so he was confined to the island of Patmos. That's a, that's a little island in the Aegean Sea, uh, and it, it was some kind of place of imprisonment and confinement during those days. It's right off, it's right off the coast of the country of Turkey today. We, we read in verse 10, more of the background, John, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day was almost certainly Sunday. You know, we, we have hints scattered throughout the New Testament that, that early believers met and worshiped together, as we are today, on Sunday. You know, the Jews worshiped on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. But we gather together and worship on, on Sunday, which is the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus was risen from the dead. And then John tells us he was in the Spirit. John doesn't mean by this that today, Sunday, I'm walking in the Spirit. Yesterday, Saturday, I was in the flesh. That's, that's not what he means by this. But what he means by being in the Spirit here is that he was receiving prophetic revelation. That's what he means by being in the Spirit. He, he was receiving revelations and visions from God. Consider the following verses. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once... I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. And, and he carried me, the me is John, he carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Then Revelation chapter 21, verse 10. And he carried me, the me is John again, he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So, so you see that link, right, between being in the Spirit and, and John seeing visions and receiving revelations. So that's what John means. He's, he's in the Spirit. He's receiving revelation from God. God is revealing himself to him. Then verses 11 and 12, we learn something very important. Revelation was not written to us. Well, not first. Yeah, it is written to us. But it was first written to people who lived in the first century. In 
to, to cities in the modern-day country of Turkey. What are those cities? Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So, so why is that important? Is that just a little historical point? No, we, we need to recognize that Revelation was written to believers in the first century, and this is very important for interpreting the book, they understood it. They got it. Did they understand everything? Now, I'm not saying that, right? But, but they understood what this book was about. So, that, you know, where do people go off the rails? Where do they make mistakes in interpreting Revelation today? They, they typically make the mistake of saying, we understand Revelation as the news comes our way. What I call newspaper eschatology, right? They read the newspaper and then that's how they interpret Revelation. But that, that's, the, that's the wrong way to read, read the book and it, and, it, and it gets you off track from the beginning. No, we ought to think the original readers, they understood this book. They were encouraged by this book. And, and of course, we can understand it as well. And it can encourage us. God intended it to speak to Christians all through history, not just Christians of the last generation. And after all, we don't know if we're the last generation, do we? So, then we see that the Apostle John turns and, and, and he sees a, a, a voice and he sees, whatever that means, right? We won't go into that. And he sees seven golden lampstands. And, and we see from verse 20 that these seven golden lampstands stand for the seven churches. So the churches, your church, right? Uh, Oakhurst Baptist, right? I'm, I'm new enough to this church. Is that the name? I think so. You know, like, where am I, right? So, um, but um, the, your church is to be a light, right? That, that's what churches are to be, a, a, light, a light to the world. And, and, and one of John's concerns, God's concern, is that the light of these churches is being quenched. Uh, one of the big issues in, 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 in the book is you have a conflict in the book and compromise, conflict with the world, and then the churches, we see that in the seven letters, a lot of the churches are compromising. So that, that's something we face as Christians all through history, right? Conflict with the world, and then uh, the, the, the temptation to compromise to fit in. So that's, that's what is going on. And we, we see from the book of Revelation, God doesn't promise our lives would be easy. He, he doesn't promise we won't suffer, does he? Um, and, and, and did you notice John's suffering, isn't he? John, I mean, he's an older person. And, uh, and, to be, and to be imprisoned and confined. I mean, that's a, that's a difficult thing. And it's, it's more difficult the older one gets with various health problems and so forth and so on. So John, John's not writing this letter from a place of comfort, right? John's not like, you know, sitting in a nice air-conditioned office and saying, bless you as you're suffering. No, he, he knows what it's like to suffer himself. The believers are suffering. They're experiencing conflict. John's suffering too. He's, he's sharing in the suffering, and that's what he says, doesn't he? I'm sharing in the affliction and the tribulation. 
But that's not all he says. Did you notice that in the text? He says, I'm, we're also sharers in the kingdom. John's not only like, whoa, woe is me. Life is so hard. Can't wait till, we, till it's over. He says, no, we also share in the kingdom. In the midst of the suffering, the kingdom is already present. It's to come, but it's already present. In the midst of the suffering, there's joy, isn't there? What does Paul say? Sorrowful, but always rejoicing. There's that tension in our lives, isn't there? There's, there's sorrow, not every minute, right? But sorrow comes in life. But, but there's also joy, even, even in the midst of the suffering. So what is John saying? I think he's anticipating where he's going. We're members of the kingdom. The kingdom's working. The kingdom's working in this church. So don't be afraid. There's conflict going on, but we're victors. The kingdom is ours. The, we, we, are, we are the ambassadors of the king. We're the, we're the embassy of the king. Do you think we'll finally be defeated? We will not be. We will not be defeated. because Not because we're so great. We're not great. But because, but because the king is ours. King Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Well, that brings us, that's just background, right? That brings us to the vision of Christ in verses 13 through 16. And John, John sees in this vision Jesus as the Son of Man, and he's in the middle of the lampstands. And, and we know that means he's in the middle of the churches, right? We've already seen the lampstands are the churches. Um, so he's in the middle of the churches. You know, something John often does, he takes, you, you can notice this as you read Revelation, he takes elements of this vision of the Son of Man, and then he applies it to all the churches in chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches. So he takes an element of that vision, and he applies it to the churches. So I'm going to mention that several times, because we're told in the first letter, chapter 2, the letter to Ephesus, we're told that Jesus walks, walks among the churches, right? That, that the, he, he's walking amongst the church in Ephesus. That means Jesus has fellowship with the churches. He, he's in the midst of the churches. He's, he's walking in this church, isn't he? He's having fellowship with your church. He's walking in the midst of every church. He's not absent. He's with you. And, and we know from the church of Ephesus, he knows that the church of Ephesus is orthodox doctrinally, but has lost its first love, that it's lost its passion for God. So he knows that about the church. But we can say his walking among the churches means he, he, knows, he knows today if you're suffering, he's, he's your good shepherd. He hasn't, he hasn't abandoned you no matter what you're going through. He he enjoys fellowship with us. He enjoys fellowship with you. He, he abides with us. He pours his love out on us. Well, Jesus is the Son of Man. You know, I should back up a minute and say we read, we read in our service today, Daniel 
7, verses 13 and 14. Let me just read Daniel 7 again. You might want to turn there if, you're, if you know where that is. Otherwise, you can just listen. If, why don't I read Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14 again, at least uh, reading thir- verses 13 and 14 again. So we see a little bit of the context in Daniel. As I looked, the, the eye there is Daniel, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, that's God, right? The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. The horn's an, an opponent to the things of God. And as I looked, the beast was killed. The beast comes up in Revelation as well, doesn't he, in chapter 13. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. We've already talked about the kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So I just want you to note again, I said it, the Son of Man is given dominion and he's given a kingdom. And it's that Son of Man who is finally Jesus. Of course, we read about that often in the Gospels, right? In all four Gospels, we're told over and over and over again that Jesus is the Son of Man. Besides the Gospels, we only see Jesus called the Son of Man in Acts chapter 7 and Revelation 1 and maybe Hebrews 2. So it's not a a title that's very common outside the Gospels, but clearly John in Revelation is picking up that title. So, so let's look at what John tells us about the Son of Man. First, he, verse 13, he has a long robe and there's a golden sash around his chest. Well, what, what's the point of that? What's the long robe and the sash mean? The, the long robe and the sash tell us that Jesus serves as a priestly Son of Man, that he's a priestly Son of Man. We, we don't have time to go back and look at it, But if you look back to Exodus chapter 28, where the priests are ordained and commissioned under the Mosaic Covenant, that's what the priests wore. They wore that long robe, same same word, and they wore wore a sash. So, So this is signifying priestly attire. Jesus, as God's priest, shed his blood for our sins. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. John's already written about it. This is what he says. He loves us and has set us free by his blood. Aren't aren't those some of the most beautiful words in the Bible? He loves us. By the way, that's present tense. He loves us. Set us free is past tense. He, 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 He loves 
He loves us, and what's the evidence of that? He set us free. He freed us. He liberated us. He ransomed us by His blood. And, and by the way, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, I know, I know this congregation is so glad you're here, and I, I, I also want to say Jesus came to set you free, to set you free from your sins, to liberate you, to, to make you new, to, to cleanse you, because we all need cleansing. You know, all of us in here, me included, we're not naturally good people. We, the gospel teaches we're all sinners. We, we prayed a prayer of confession today, didn't we? We all fall short of what God requires. We, we all need cleansing. We all need new life. We, 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 we all need to be forgiven. And, and that's what the gospel offers, right? Jesus, Jesus cleanses us by his blood. He frees us. He makes us, he makes us new. So that's the, that's the best news in the world. You know, you could, there are things that you and I may do where, where someone close to us may never forgive us, right? But Jesus, Jesus forgives us of our sins if we turn to him in faith and put our trust in him. So that, that is great news. And for Christian, he, he loves you, right? What did John Owen say? One of my favorite quotes, I say it all the time. We sin. Why do we sin? We sin because we forget how much. God loves us. He loves us and has set us free by our blood. He's our, he's our great priest. So next we see that the hair of the son of man's head was white, like white wool, like snow. So, you know, I read that passage in Daniel 7, and, uh, you know, maybe we're all thinking of many different things. Did you notice something strange in comparing Daniel 7 to Revelation chapter 1? According to Daniel 7, which we just read together, the Lord has the white hair, not the Son of Man. Has John remembered the passage incorrectly? Is he a sloppy Bible reader? You know, just too quick of a read there. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. First of all, we should note that John often does this in Revelation. He takes these Old Testament passages and he tweaks them a little bit. He adjusts them. I don't think he's distorting them, but he tweaks them. But we don't have time to look at all that, but here we see an example of this. So, Paul, um, John alters the words of the Old Testament intentionally. Why? What's he telling us? What's, what's the lesson? He's telling us He's telling us that the Son of Man is fully divine, right? God, God has white hair, like, like snow, like wool. So does the Son of Man. What is he telling us? He's fully God. He's fully divine. As God the Father is fully God, so is God the Son, and so is God the Holy Spirit. Of course, we... We don't have time to get into the doctrine of the Trinity, but it's right there in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. He's already talked about the Trinity, not without using the word Trinity. And, and what does the white hair stand for? Probably um, his eternity. He's eternal. Right? This is not a literal picture, right? Have you, have you seen people? I've seen people who have actually drawn this out. But it's not meant to be literal. This is... This is apocalyptic literature, right? 
Apocalypse now. Well, apocalypse then, right? It's, an, it's apocalyptic literature. It's not meant to be interpreted literally. He's not saying Jesus literally has white hair. We'll see him in heaven. Oh, there he is, the one with the white hair. That's not, that's not the point, is it? The point is he's eternal, and, and, and perhaps as well the point is he's, he's wise. The white hair symbolizes his wisdom. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus shares the very identity of God. He is fully God. Notice, notice as well in verse 14 that the Son of Man's eyes are like a flame of fire. Well, again, this is not literal, right? It's not like Jesus has eyes that are like little coals burning in his head, right? That's not the point. The point is nothing is hidden from his gaze, right? The, the point is he's omniscient. He, he sees, he sees beneath the surface. Nothing is concealed from the Son of Man. I've been a Christian a long time, and I've been with people in church who are it can happen to any of us, right? They're faking. They're not, they're not, they're, they, they come to church and act one way, but they act a different way outside of church, a way that's not pleasing to God. You, you, you can fool me. <laughs> you can fool other people in this church. But the Son of Man knows, doesn't he? Nothing's hidden from him. It's really a very silly game to play, isn't it? Because he knows if you're acting a different way. When you're not here, he knows it all. Who do we think we're fooling? Well, sometimes we think we are fooling people, right? Because we think about people more than God. But the Son of Man knows if we're living a double life. He knows if we're compromising. He sees, he sees it all. Recently, maybe some of you saw this, you know, the, the crown, you know, this, the, the story of uh, Queen Elizabeth who recently died of England at, what, 97 years old. So what, it's the fifth season of The Crown. My wife and I have watched all of them. And my favorite scene in season five was uh, she and her husband, Philip, are talking about kind of the mar marital infidelity of some of their family members. Maybe some of you remember this. And uh, I don't know if this really happened, but it was a great scene in, in, the, in the series because they're talking about it, and Philip's sort of like, well, you know, well, you know how it is. But then the queen says, but you know what bothers me? He knows, she said. He knows. That's what bothers me. Oh, what, a, what a great moment. Yes, he knows what's going on. He has eyes like a flame of fire. You know, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, that's repeated again. And here, here, there's a, a threat of judgment on the false prophetess Jezebel. See, Jezebel claims to be a Christian. Now, that's not her real name, right? It's picking up from the Old Testament. Her name wasn't really Jezebel. We see again the symbolism of the book, right? It's a real person, but that's not her name. Uh, nobody names their kids Jezebel after reading the Old Testament, right? <laughs> that, that's not her name. But, but she's leading the church astray with her false uh, prophecies. Uh, you know... Uh, Perhaps some of you have noticed lately, Calvin University, a great Christian university, but some of their professors are now being allowed to stay on when they're denying historic Christian teachings on sexuality. And they're letting it go. They're letting it go. A false, a false teaching is being allowed 
at a Christian university. Why? They're, they're compromising, aren't they? They're compromising to fit in with, with the world. Well, that's what, what, that's what Jezebel was doing. And Jesus says, I see, I see it. And I'm going to judge. And then we see it again in Revelation chapter 19, verse 12. And that's a text. In Revelation 19, Jesus comes on a white horse. So that, that's, that's the second coming. And, and again, we're told Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire. In other words, those who oppose him will be destroyed. And they'll be judged on that last day. They'll be, they'll be cast into the lake of fire. When, when John wrote this, uh, Rome seemed to be in control of the world. Anti-God forces had all the political and all the judicial power. And sometimes it may seem like that today as well. Does it, does it seem like the world is sliding out of control? That, that things are going from bad to worse? That the Christians are no longer respected. Well, they weren't respected in the first century either. There's nothing, there's nothing new here. But, but the victory of, of Rome, the victory of the world, it's a very brief victory, isn't it? It's not, it's not going to last. The day of judgment is coming. The Son of Man, He sees, He knows. He will judge. Notice also in verse 15 that the Son of Man's feet are like burnished bronze. Again, that's not literal, is it? He doesn't have eyes like coals and literal feet of burnished bronze, right? It's, it's a picture. Burnished bronze, right, it gleams. It gleams with splendor and its beauty. And notice it says it's rough. Refined, right? It's refined, isn't it? And, and notice something else. It says his feet are like burnished bronze. It doesn't say they are. So it cl clearly we're dealing with symbolism. What, what's the point of this? Prob probably two things. His purity. His purity. Uh, the refined and beauty of burnished bronze. He's, he's perfectly good and perfectly holy. But also it probably symbolizes strength. He crushes and destroys his enemies. One reason I think it refers to his strength because it comes up again in chapter 2. There we're told Jesus has feet of burnished bronze. And when it comes up, it comes up in a context that says he will not tolerate evil. He will crush it finally. He's patient. He's been patient with me, and he's patient with you. But those who give themselves to evil and who do not repent, we're not ashamed of this, right? It's good news, actually. It's part of the good news. He will judge because God is good. The judgment is a good thing, isn't it? It's not a hateful thing. Without judgment, life makes no sense. There's no meaning in life without a judgment. But, but what we do with our lives, it matters. What you do with your lives matters. And there's a judgment coming from the Holy One. His voice is like the roar of many waters, verse 15. His voice is majestic, like the mighty ocean waters. I grew up in Oregon, and 
oft many times went to the beach and hearing the crashing of the waves. There's a lot of cliffs in Oregon, so the crashing of the waves, sometimes right up under the cliffs, it's beautiful and majestic. Or, or, or it's like the waterfalls rushing down, right? Or like a mighty rushing river. There are many voices in the world, in the culture, in social media. There, there, there's, the, the voices are swirling, 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 talking, talking, talking. But here's the voice that silences all other voices. This is the final word. This is the authoritative word. This is the voice that silences all other voices. Notice also in verse 16 that a two-edged sword comes out of the mouth of the Son of Man. That can't be literal. A two-edged sword would cut up your mouth, right? No, no, the this, this sword refers to the word that comes from the mouth of the Son of Man. That, that word cuts and destroys his enemies. It's an effective word. It's a powerful word. Again, this image shows up in chapter 2 in the letter to the church at Pergamum where, where some Christians are compromising. And it appears again in Revelation 19, that passage again where Jesus comes on the white horse and is coming again, the passage on the final judgment. We, we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, about the man of lawlessness. Who's the man of lawlessness? He's, he's the Antichrist. He's the beast of Revelation chapter 13. And we're told in, Revel in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the, the man of lawlessness will be slain by the breath that comes from Jesus' mouth. He'll be thrown into the lake to the lake of fire. Finally, the face of the Son of Man was shining like the sun in its strength. Have you ever tried to look at the sun when it's shining at full strength? Well, don't do it, <laughs> right? Well, you can do it for a second, right? I mean, how long can you look at it? There are people who have done it, but it can damage your eyes, right? So, so, so the point is it, he, he, he's too glorious even to look at. He is, he is so beautiful and, and majestic and, and wonderful and radiant. So that... We, we all want beauty in our lives. We, 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 we long for, for beauty to fill us. The, the, I, I take it everybody in here loves music, and we probably like different kinds of music, but we all, why do we love music? Because, because music is beautiful, and it speaks to us at a deep level, at a level that we can't even express in words often. Well, all that comes finally from God, doesn't it? Beauty comes from Him. Everything beautiful in this world points to, to our God and to Jesus as the Son of Man. So that leads me to the third part of my message. So we've seen the background, we've seen the vision, and now we see the response. The response is both our response and the response of the Son of Man. So the response is... Twofold. First, John sees in verse 17, the Son of Man in all his glory, and he falls on his face as though dead. Verse 17, he faints straight away. You know, have you ever said, really, I'd love to see God, or, or how about just an angel? But we really don't know what we're talking about, right? Because whenever it happens in, in the Bible that they come, 
People, people faint. They're terribly afraid. Remember, remember when the angel Gabriel appeals, appears to Zechariah and, and, and Mary? They're afraid. It's a, it's a fearsome thing for us mortal creatures to meet heavenly beings, and here it's the Son of Man. But, you know, we learned something interesting from this passage, right? People climb Mount Everest for the adventure, the risk, and the thrill. Did, you, did, you, did some of you read that book, in, Into Thin Air? I mean, I read that book. But the, the, one of the things that struck me in reading that book is <laughs> he never says he's having fun, you know? <laughs> He never says, I'm really enjoying this. Even when he's very at the top, it's always like, I'm in total misery, you know? And I'm like, okay, I don't think I want to do that. But, but why did he do it? It's, it's, the, it's the, you know, the, the risk of it. There's, there's something exciting, right, about risking your life, about doing something that's incredibly hard. That, that's why people do that. Because the one thing we don't want to do is be bored. You know, we, we want life to be exciting, and we want it to be thrilling, and we want it to be interesting. Well, you'll never get bored with God, right? Because, because all the excitement and thrill of this life, again, it points to Him, right? He, there's no one more interesting and fascinating than God Himself, and we'll never come to the end of understanding Him. We'll never be able to domesticate Him. Right? We'll never, so to speak, be able to climb up and say we've conquered. No, there's always new vistas, as, as, as C.S. Lewis said, right, further up and further in. We, we never come to the end of who God is. So, so only God can satisfy our souls, right? Only He can fully fill that need in our hearts. Our hearts, as Augustine said, are restless until they rest. Indeed. But the Son of Man is not only terrifying, and He is terrifying, there's something exciting about being terrifying, right? This is not a bad terrifying. There's, there's something that thrills us with that which is terrifying. But He's not only terrifying, but He's also loving and comforting. He lays His hand on John, and what does He say? That's the theme of my passage. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. That's the word to a suffering church, to a beleaguered church, to a persecuted church, to a church in danger of compromise. And that's the word for you today and for me. Don't be afraid. We can fear so many things, as uh, Johnny prayed in his prayer. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we can, we can fear the future. We can fear we can fear death. We can fear our health. But the glorious Son of Man says, do not fear. Why? Why? Because, because the Son of Man is also the Son of God. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. You know, that, that statement is truly astonishing because it goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back to the book of Isaiah. And here's what Isaiah chapter 44 verse 6 says. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. So this is Yahweh speaking. 
the God of Israel. And he's saying, there's only one God. There's no other God besides me. I am God. There is no other. I'm the first and I'm the last. All the idols, they're non-entities. They don't ultimately exist. And yet Jesus appropriates these words, doesn't he? So, so we see here again the mystery of the Trinity begins to intrude upon our text, doesn't it? Because there's only one God, and yet Jesus shares in the very identity of that one God. Jesus himself is fully divine. Jesus is God, right? And yet, and yet there's a Father and a Son and a Spirit. Well, that's for another, another time. But if you talk to someone and they say, I don't believe Jesus is God, just show them this. Take them back to Isaiah. How do you explain this? It's so clear. It's clear all over the New Testament, actually, in the mystery of the Trinity. There are three persons, but one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But there are not three gods, but one God in three persons. So the Son of Man is the first and the last. He's always been. He will always be. He's the first and the last. He reigned at the beginning of history. He'll reign at the end of history. And what, what is John saying? He reigns over the middle of history too. It isn't as if in between something else takes over. No, he's always ruled. So fearful Christian, the Son of Man, holds the world in his hands. The world isn't spinning out of his control. He's not, the Son of Man is not up in heaven saying, oh no, oh no, oh, what's going to happen? Well, no, well, what's happening now? Look what's happening in America. Oh no, that's not the case, is it? He holds the whole world in his hands. He holds the United States in his hands. He holds every country in his hands. And he holds your life in his hands, doesn't he? Your life isn't spinning out of control either. But John doesn't stop there. Jesus isn't only fully God, but he's also fully man. In verse 18, Jesus says, I'm the living one. And then he says, this is amazing. This is so astonishing. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Here we celebrate the heart of the mystery of our faith. I was dead, says the Son of Man, who is the Son of God. I was dead. The eternal dies. And now, of course, Jesus doesn't die in his divine nature. I'm not saying that. But, but what titanic words these are. Jesus says, I was dead. And some of you, John's saying to the church, some of you are going to die as Jesus died, being persecuted for the faith. And of course, all of us, unless Jesus comes first, we're going to die too. But we serve a God who knows what it's like to die. You know, Job says in the middle of his suffering, he says, God, he's arguing with God. Job argues with God quite a bit. He says, God, you don't know what it's like to have flesh and blood. I'm paraphrasing. You don't know what it's like to be human. 
But Job wrote before Jesus, right? He, he died. He died. He suffered. And God was with him. But death isn't the last word. As the Son of Man, what? He's conquered death. He lives forevermore. And now he holds the keys of death and Hades. I think, I think those stand for the same thing. Hades stands for the realm of the dead. Sheol, right? Death and Hades. They're like personal powers. But he holds the keys of death and Hades. And uh, he takes those keys and he unlocks the doors of death, right? He just unlocks them. And for those who know Jesus, he says, come out and live with me. That's why we don't fear, right? Because, because death, death can't win. Death and Hades can't win over those who belong to Jesus. He's unlocked the door, and we're, we're, we're out of the prison of death and Hades. We may still die, but we know that death, as John Donne said, death be not proud. Death, death thou shalt die. Death can't win over us. So the wages of sin is death, but we have no reason to fear death because Jesus has flung the prison doors open wide. So as I close, the words of Jesus, the Son of Man, ring down through history, and they land on us today. Wherever you are, whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, Jesus says, do not fear. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. I hold the keys of death and Hades. I am the first and the last. Let's pray. Father, what a comfort it is to know that we serve a victorious God, that we serve a Savior who has died and who has risen again and conquered death. Lord, we pray that you would give us fallible, weak, sinful people confidence in you. Lord, we need you to strengthen us with these promises May your spirit work so that they continue to inform our lives and give us hope in the week, in the months, and the years ahead, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.